Hey, how how are you doing? Very well. How are you doing? I'm I'm wonderful. Wonderful for speaking to you. Yeah, I think we're just down the road from each other because I'm in Brooklyn. You're in Brooklyn. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> are you living there now? Uh huh. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> are you okay to start? You you ready? Yeah, sure. I am. Hello and welcome to Skin Things. My name is Skin and let me start off with a bit about myself. I've been in the music industry for about, uh, gosh, long time, over 30 years. Along with my band Skunk Nancy, I've made records, I've headlined music festivals and performed alongside some legends of the game. I've been on TV and I've even released a book called It Takes Blood and Guts. And now I've also hosted my own radio show on Absolute Radio. As part of that show, I've had the pleasure of chatting to some of my musical heroes, friends from the industry, and some of the most exciting and up and coming talent. So if you've listened to my radio show, you may have heard parts of these interviews, but I felt there was just too much good stuff that was really interesting and inspiring and heartfelt that um, we just weren't able to broadcast, uh, wasn't enough time. So this is the place to hear the full chats, uncut. Uh, just two musicians spilling the tea, basically. Now, when I was younger, I used to watch Top of the Pops religiously, and there was one performance that, simply put, made me want to be a singer. And back in December 2020, I was lucky enough to get to speak to that very person who inspired me all of those years ago. That was why I wanted to begin Skin Things with my chat with Blondie's Debbie Harry. Enjoy. Well, first, I wanted to tell you that um, I really loved the book. Uh, I guess what I loved about it was that um, it gave me a really strong sense of, like, I could picture it. I was there, you know, in, in the village. And I could. it just gave me a really so- strong sense of where you came out of. Because I'm, I'm just a really strong believer in some of the best bands come out of, like, dirty, rough clubs and dirty, crappy areas with no, everybody's got no money, especially now in a time when it feels like a lot of new music is electronic because it's just made in someone's bedroom and kind of in isolation surrounded by keyboards and stuff. Not, not that that's a diss, but um, how do you think that scene changed the music that you made? Like, was the music that you ended up making what you dreamed of when you were, you know, going on your way to, to New York? You know, I don't know if I had a specific idea of, you know, what kind of music uh, I wanted to make because it was all such a learning experience for me. Um, But I totally agree with you that, you know, um, interaction and live music and, and, you know, (laughs) facing the worst of it, you know, is, is very, very important. And it really adds all of that, you know, it's like it's like the best recipe that you could make is like a little of this and a little of that, and yeah. you know you take you take what's available and you pinch it together, and um, you know that that's just, that's really what it's about, you know. And as you say, you know, it is a way of uh, survival, uh, and it just you know breeds all of this. The I don't know. I I hate to use the word magic, but it it does make a concoction that you know makes it fresh and sitting in your room there's nothing wrong with that because you know a lot of people write great things when they're when they're deep in thought and you know when they're alone and and you know feeling you know going over their feelings and whatever um but performing it and you know putting your ass out there on the line in front of other people 
you know, that that really is a great, I don't know, it's a great way to, to sort of, you have to do that. There's no yeah. other way. Kind of gives you, gives you the flavor, right? Because, I, I mean, my band were from a, a scene in King's Cross, I don't know if you know it, but in those days in the nineties, yeah. you do you know it? Like it was, it was crazy. But you, I used to come out the train station and have to run to the water rats so that I didn't get mugged on the way. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, good thing but, you're uh, a good runner. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I did. I used to actually run from my school, so that was lucky. <laughs> but not so easy in heels. Yeah. Um, but uh, I just, I was in New York. I got to New York recently just uh, to see that Studio 54 exhibition at the Met. Um, and of course, you know, to us looking back, it looks all like amazing and major and all the character. But when I was walking around, I had this really strong sense that if I was a clubber and into like the music that I was into back then, I would have never stepped foot in a place because it just seemed to be so glamorous and all these famous people and whatever and you know as a teenager I was so anti that what was it like at the same time for you did there was a bit of that or there was a bit of like you know we popped there but then we went to the mud club or other places yes well you know they were just very smart and they they just knew how to put it all together and um I actually think that they sort of created that velvet rope thing and, you know, making people making people wait outside. They, you know, they just and um, I think both of them were reasonably well connected with a lot of, you know, artists and famous, you know, actors and so on and so forth. So they made this thing look, you know, very, very Tony and very, you know, super gloss and everything. Um, but there was definitely a dark side to it. There's definitely the, yeah. the funk, the funk element, which you know, kept it cooking, you know, that's what really kept it cooking. Yeah, it, well, exactly. I mean, I, I, I read a lot about that with having them having all the money in the roof and the ceiling inside the office and all that stuff. I mean, it, was it a place that you went to often or you were a bit more like, you know, not quite my scene? No, as a matter of fact, I didn't go there very often. <clears throat> and uh, as you said, you know, I, I sort of skipped the place because it was uptown and, you know, all this, you know, gloss and glitz and everything. And um, the first time that I went there, I was surprised that they let me in. So there you <laughs> <No>. go. <laughs> yeah. I would have you'd be right yeah. there in the middle of the stage, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, that sort of, it was open for, for you know, quite a number of years, really. Mm. And um, I guess when I first went there, uh, I might have been uh, sort of on the cusp of, you know, becoming uh, palatable in some way. But um, mm -hmm. no, you know, I, I, was, I was sort of surprised that I was ushered in, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think I actually knew the, the bouncer or the doorman. He was smart. Oh, boy. Right? I, you know, that's what people don't realize, that the smartest person in the in the world is the guy who lets people in into a club i mean mm. there are there have been some geniuses and just that's a specialized field really 
Yeah, it really is because you have to know everybody, and then you have to know if you don't get those right people in the, in the fastest speed of time, and you know, and get the right blend in the club. You know, it's it's. I, I watch my girlfriend do it, and it's it's crazy how knowledgeable they have to do about all the little mini scenes in New York and all those genres and flavors to get the right mix in the club. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, I was. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you something. Um, in your book, right, it seems like it took a long time, as you were talking earlier, to get the right blend of members and the right sounds. And I know you guys experimented a lot um, with just about everything that you, you, you needed to do to get it right. Where was that turning point? When did you know that you've got it right and, OK, now we're just going to move forward with this? Well, you know, we started uh, quite early on and... Uh... We we came to a point uh, where it, it sort of sort of uh, disintegrated on its own, and mm. um, you know in, instead of walking away and saying "ah," oh, you know we uh, we held an audition for a drummer, and uh, stupidly we put uh, an ad with our name in the Village Voice, and uh, I, I don't know. It, Supposedly, I'm, I'm pretty sure there were 50 people, 50 yeah. guys who showed up. Crazy, crazy thing to, you know, audition 50, 50 guys. And the last guy who came in was Clem. And yeah. I think from that, you know, we had we had a real basis. And we had a, a triangle, you know. We had the, yeah. the three points of location. You know, when you when you do a location thing, you need to, you need to triangulate. And that's pretty much it. We triangulated. And right. then, then we, you know, then we looked further. Hmm. Um, but, but that was the foundation. Uh, Clem was, uh, yeah, Clem was sort of like <clears throat> a rock and roll animal, you know, mm. that was it. You know, and it it just, you know, he had the quality of, of stardom about him, you know. Hmm. And, um, you know, there was clearly there was nobody else that walked into the room like Clem Burke. And so, mm. you know, that's, that's where we, that's, I don't know, that to me was a very solidifying, um, you know, event. Yeah. And because I, I think before that, you know, our bass player had uh, quit us and, and joined television and uh, our drummer sort of, you know, dropped out of the music scene. And so we were just sort of, you know, completely left with just the two of us and, you know, yeah. Chris and myself. And then, uh, I don't know, I don't know how or why we decided to have an open audition, open call like that, but we did Crazy. it. And <laughs> Crazy. the last we, one, he was number 50. Clem was number 50. Magical. He walked through yeah. the door. He should always yeah. wear a shirt that has 50 <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. exactly I'm, I'm the guy I mean it's like when you get the right drummer then it's kind of like you can take a sigh of relief you know we had the same issues in our band you know because the, when you got that roots person at the back thundering along being credible it's just like it's just like a, a breeze a powerful wind that just blows you forward right yeah 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 that's right you know you you've had uh, I guess you've had your Mm. trials and tribulations <laughs> having had <laughs> yeah. I know how many bands have you had really me um not that many first one was at university then I, a bunch of 
things, uh, kind of jazz and experimental things when I got back to London because I studied up north. And then um, I put together my first band, uh, which is called Mama Wild, and that was when I, it got serious. And then the second band, Skunk and Nancy, came straight after that. So really kind of, really I'd say two rock bands because the first one doesn't really count, you know. It's kind of awful. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> um, but, counts, you know, with... it counts. You can count it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. It. <laughs> I have permission. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> um, do you know, because I've, I've been coming to, to New York since I was like 17. Um, and when my band was at its peak, in kind of the 90s peak, I would say, um, I spent a lot of time here recording and doing things. In fact, we played CBGBs a few times. So that was nice um, when you talked about that. And my favorite place in New York, which was Squeezebox. And you were talking about John Walters and Squeezebox. And I was just like, yeah, we just caught the tail end of that. Because Squeezebox to me was like, from girl from Brixton, I'd never seen anything like it. I was in love with Miss Guy. And John Walters was there in the corner with all the, looking amazing with the beautiful people around him. And so it just evoked all of that. But um, I was going to talk to you about this term punk because you, you really are the epitome of punk and everything that you talked about, the music and experimental and everything. Do you think it still exists? How do you define punk? You know, what do you think is about the word punk that for you just summed it all up? And do you think it's, it's still now, it's still here now? Or is it kind of more like, oh, do punk, people just spray it around when they want to? Ah, well, of course, there's some of that. And there is the sort of uh, three chord theory. Um, but um, I think it has to do with... Uh, I guess being fearless and, and in some way and, and being stubborn and stupid at the same time and, mm -hmm. um, you know, making making a statement about yourself and uh, the people that you're with. You know, I, I love the band experience and I, I know that we share that. Um, it's, it's very vital to me, you know, to yeah. have this, you know. Uh, ensemble People experience is, is is so great you know it's so rich and it just it just uh it changes things if you're willing to you know share an idea and and you know make a blend of of these ideas i i just think it's complete genius and right. i i you know i can't say enough about people you know getting out of their room and you know getting with other musicians and, you know, letting it, letting it sort of happen, you know. And being prepared to kind of just up and get it all wrong, I think is, to me, been more important than any of the successes in a way, because that's why where the successes came from is just up time and time after, yeah. you know, time again. Yes, it's like the deconstruction um, you know, of art or fashion, it's the same thing in music, you know, to deconstruct and <clears throat> not be stuck, you know, um, mm. you have to, you have to be, I don't know, what do you have to be to do that? It's not necessarily that you're brave and fearless. It, it's, yes, it's a sort of, I don't know, a sense of values or a, actually a sort of, um, trust in yourself ultimately. Mm. I think um, just also being uh, shy and quiet and knowing that you had more to yourselves uh, sometimes I think about, you know, sometimes that comes to me. 
how do you write songs nowadays? How's that changed? Do you kind of um, mess about in a room together or is it a little bit more, um, it's probably a bit more digital nowadays, but a bit more kind of like you listen to demos and write demos now, or are you kind of more in a room playing together, thrashing things out like you did in the early days? We're, we're doing both, you know. I think that uh, each situation, each song sort of is, is different, you know. Sometimes... Uh, We'll be in, uh, you know, a room, uh, you know, sort of all together or some of us and uh, somebody will come in with an idea, a bit of an idea and say, well, you know, what do you think of this? And you start playing then, you know, um, everybody will sort of start fiddling around or, you know, chiming in or saying, oh, that sucks, you know, and... (laughs) some of it you know so everybody just saying uh, well I have this great thing I've come up with and then you know uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, style of playing too you know because none of us are um, really super schooled you know precise uh, you know trained musicians or you know artists it's it's all it all is experimental which as you just said, you know, is is the best way. You know, you're just not afraid to to f- up. You can't help but f- up. Mm. F- glorious. Yes. You know, and and when you do it live, you know, there, there were times early on that were so some of my greatest moments where I, I it was just like I don't know it, it was like some kind of <laughs> musical orgasm of you know we'd be on stage and we'd be playing really hard and playing it, you know, trying to do it and playing it and playing it. And then something would go terribly wrong, terribly, terribly wrong. And we'd be all fuddling about and everybody trying to find where are we? What are we doing? Where are we? What what part <laughs> yeah. of the song is this? And then all of a sudden it would like clunk, come back together. And it was yeah. just, oh, uh, it really is orgasmic. It's, it's so fantastic. It's amazing that you say that because one of the best things I love on stage is when things just go wrong and we all look at each other like Ace can just miss a couple of beats sometimes because he's like, like, like you're saying, none of us are trained. And then it's kind of like, oh, no, Ace is out. OK, what are we going to do? Let's dig ourselves out of that. And then we'll just almost play another song until we get it back together. And that for me, it's fun because otherwise touring is really just repetition. It's just repetition for a different group of people every night so yeah i really hear what what you're saying in that one i love that yeah i love it too do you know what it really struck me in the book when i was reading it? i was like you've got so much stuff miss miss harry you've got so much you've got the dresses you've got the um flyers you've got so much of the stuff like even you're talking about the dress that you have in the back of the cupboard that stinks that you know you've worn it in so many gigs you know <laughs> I, I was like I was just like yeah I you know are you sure you ever thought about doing a, a Debbie Harry a blondie kind of exhibition like the David Barry did because I think that'd be fascinating because it's it's not that you've got so much blondie stuff but you've just sounds like you've got so much stuff of the time um and that as we all know that time is all gone now um and people are thirsty for it would you ever consider doing like an exhibition of all of that, all of those, the, the crumbling bits and the glossy bits and the bits in between of everything you have? Uh, yeah, I have thought of that. And uh, it, it's funny that you brought that up because, um, I mean, I don't have any plans to do it. I mean, it, it is definitely something that could be done. And um, 
in retrospect, you know, I, I have, you know, come to the conclusion that, oh, it was good that I saved it because uh, initially, you know, I just didn't, didn't want to throw it away because it meant something to me. But, um, you know, the, these pieces that we, you know, what we're talking about, there really are just fragile bits of rot, you know, and, and um, I don't know how anybody could, you know, put a show like that together because uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't have uh, a big budget, you know, to put together, you know, a show or a wardrobe for a show or anything like that. It was just, you know, what was there and, you know, reassembling it and, you know, putting it together nicely. Um, so, you know, it it would be tricky. It would be tricky to do something like that. I think that uh, Bowie was very, so, so incredibly smart, you know, and, you know, he, he, he had this overview and that's, uh, I don't know if I can honestly say that I had that, but. Um, on the other hand, my partner, Chris, um, I used to laugh at him because he, he saved everything. We have, we have one in our band, our guitarist, Ace, is that we call him the uh, bibliography because he has everything. He even had the keys to our old lockup, which had some old gear in it, and he had them saved somewhere. So you could, It'd be amazing. You should do it. We should, somebody, we should put that idea out there because... The the crumminess is the stuff that people, that's the stuff that's more important than the glossiness, and that's the stuff that's kind of gone. You know the, you know the the the, the tattered flyers and the kind of rougher and the dark side and the edgy and the punkier side of stuff. But maybe that stuff is not as well preserved, but that's the stuff that I think people need to see and that people would love because. You know, there's all these these exhibitions are all so perfect and all so nice. And I just think for what people coming up now and kids, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I can just smell that room. I can smell the, the, the yeah, Debbie Harry being on stage by being that you, you could put fans behind the dress so that people could smell it. <laughs> I could I could see how, you know, you're, you're right about this, because, you know, what you were saying before about everything being digital and, you know, so uh, I know. It doesn't have that smell. There's no smell to it. And yeah. we are animals. We are animals that have all of these different senses. But because of the nature of, uh, you know, reproduction and, you know, how we do everything online, you know, uh, there's a big, uh, big missing element, uh, animal, you know, this animal element. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what now. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's missing. I think so. I All think right, I'm, this... I'm going to get real stinky now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With the, it's the smell of it, the flavor of it. You know, it's like if you go to the London Dungeons in London, they actually have the smell of Oh, my of God. Oh, my like... God. We used to go there all the time. <laughs> right. Oh my it, God. it smells oh, like London, London oh 200 years God, ago. No. Oh, <laughs> they got some God, good clubs under go there. there. Yeah, I love that because I, I felt like I was, you know, I could be like a pauper in the corner. I could just smell what it would be like. And it was so, you know, the Victorians and they were disgusting. They <laughs> and 
and and gobbed and just everything. It was just nasty, as my mum would say. So I think that that's what's missing from everything. That all the stories, like in London, they talk about Britpop and they forget about Kings Cross and all these other areas, Brixton. And it's like, yeah, they should do something, and you could be, you know, not not that I'm saying that that's what you are digging myself in a hole. I'm just saying it's another side to it, you know. is slightly kind of uh, slightly darker because I know that in the book you talk about some experiences that were, were quite horrific to read and like quite kind of like like a dagger went through my heart when you were talking about getting mugged and what happened afterwards and but in the book you seem to have this resilience that yes this was awful but I'm not going to dwell on that too much and some things that I know that some women would go man oh that was awful and she's just like said it was like fine and whatever how do you did deal with writing about that in the book is it something that just came out of you or you just felt you know I'm not going to dwell on this this assault or abuse here because that's how it was and I moved forward and that's I'm okay with that um how, how did you feel about that when you were writing it and how do you feel about now afterwards after it's all out there in the public well you you know you're you're very close to something there because you know, one one of the things in promoting this book, you know, and, and having written some of those, uh, you know, stories down um, and not dwelling on, you know, this deep introspection. Of course, of course, I've had introspection about everything, um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I didn't really want to get, you know, super bogged down into it. And I, I sort of assumed that, you know, anybody, you know, who had any feeling left in their, you know, brains or bones, um, would, would know what the feelings were and that I didn't have mm. to really explain. But I think that the internal process, you know, I, I didn't really go through all of the internal process. I, I sort of tend, tend in life to, you know, keep going, say, oh, well, that happened. And, you know, um, uh, I may have some scars here or there, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm alive and I haven't been hurt too much physically, or or not yeah. at all. And I'm I'm moving on because I'm more interested in in what may come and what I could you know find in in the future. I'm like a a treasure hunter or something, you know, an adventurous. But um, you know, I, I feel in retrospect that you know I I maybe should have done a little bit more introspection and, and it explained a little bit more about my process. Um, you know, in the book, because that that is one of the questions that's been asked repeatedly. How did you, hmm. you know, you made so little of, you know, some of these, you know, death defying adventures or f- things that happened. And, you know, my God, how how could that be? Hmm. And they're right. They're right. There is more to it. Well, it's it's always easier having written my own book it's always easier to look at things in retrospect um and i also think there's a sense of um from my own view some things that happened to me some things really didn't bother me that much that a lot of people go crazy over nowadays you know there are some things i'm like yeah that was a bit sexist or that was a bit you know but I'm not going to pretend like I felt a big deal about it because I didn't, you know. And then some things I'm like, no, that actually I remember every item and every f- nuance of feeling 
that I had about that thing. So I'm going to write about that. And I did feel that, like, for instance, when you talk about Chris, it's such a deep, heartfelt, emotional connection. And so you talked about that a lot. And I think that that's such a lovely, deep, wonderful feeling that comes out of the book, you know, that, you know, okay, I can... You know, in the retrospect, yes, you can change things or not, but that's how I felt, and that's how I wrote the book, and that's what's out there. But then the, on other things, it's like this long, deep, lovely, wonderful, um, up and down relationship you've had, which has kind of shaped everything, as is also comes out of the book in such a wonderful way as well. You know? Yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, I started reading your book, and you did. Um, I somebody stole it. I'm going to have to send you one. I'll send you a signed one. Somebody took, it out of my, <laughs> somebody took it out of my apartment. And I was thinking, my God, <laughs> you know, that's a, I think that's a real compliment. Oh, yeah. Somebody stole it out of Debbie Harry's. Of course, that is a major compliment. But I'm, I'm going to personally sign it and send it to you. Um, we'll get your address somehow. Okay. And I will I send like you that. a new one. You know, I might even get okay. my bike and put it through your <laughs> box. But listen, I've got one last question because I know I've dragged you out. Um, it's not really a question, um, Debbie, Harry. Yeah, we have the same name, by the way. My name's also Deborah. I know, Deborah, um, and it's spelled the correct right? way. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 from the Bible. My, my, my other half uh, is Jewish, and so her dad calls me Deborah with the V because actually it's originally a Jewish Bible, biblical name. The most important person in the Bible, by the way, I'm sure you know that. Um, but um, this isn't really a question. I was just going to um, just fangirl out for a minute and just tell you that the reason why I was so desperate to interview you was because you are the reason and you're the thing that got me thinking that I wanted to go on stage and be a singer. I used to watch Top of the Pops religiously because Top of the Pops was just like, my um, window into another world. It was like, you know, I want to get on stage with, you know, Bowie and, and Boy George and Shalimar and all these bands. And when you came on, I think I was about 12 years old, and you came on in a stripy dress and you sang this lyric, Dreaming, Dreaming is Free. And that was the first time I thought, yeah, Dreaming is Free. You know, like, she looks like she's having a great time and she looks amazing and the music is amazing. I want to do that. And that was the first time I thought I want to do what you were doing, but not what you were doing, but my version of it. So that was the reason I was, I've been harassing you to um, actually get to talk to you in, and, um, and interview you. Um, and the first interview I asked for when they said, oh, do you want to do some interviews? First thing I said was, was Debbie Harry. So it was not really a question. I just wanted to tell you that, that what you did got somebody like me, this little black girl in Brixton, onto, you know, believing that she could be on stage. So I thank you for that. Uh, well, thank you for telling me. That's a really good, good story. It makes me feel great. And um, you've done a wonderful job. No <laughs> <laughs> girl from Brixton. <laughs> Go for it. No, thank it's just, you. Uh, it's so sweet. Thank you very much. And it was uh, nice talking with you. And I, I wanted you to have my phone number in case you ever, you know, wanted to just talk or something um, That'd be normal, great. Not, a, not an interview. Um, do you want yeah. to write it down? Amazing. I'm going to call you up. I'm going to text you and we're going to go for coffee. And I've just loved talking to you. Um, it's just been a joy and a thrill for me. So I'm definitely going to call you out. And I'm going to buy you coffee and we're going to chat some more. All right? <laughs> okay. Very good. I like it. 
Isn't she incredible? Um, that's Debbie Harry there. I was so overawed and just delighted to be able to speak to her. And I can confirm we've been in touch since. <laughs> um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and leave a nice review wherever you get your podcast. And you can get in touch with me. You can just tweet me at Skin Skinny. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to hear me on the radio playing tunes, then you can catch me on Sunday nights. 10 to 12 on Absolute Radio. You can catch up on demand or on the Absolute Radio app so you never have to miss it. Join me next time on Skin Tings when I'll be joined by a proper, proper legend of the 90s. And now he's my old mate, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. See you then. Mm-hmm.